Today we are continuing our series entitled Answering Our Culture, and we're, we're, we're talking about common objections that people have to Christianity, and we've talked about being prepared to give an answer for those that wonder why we have a hope, uh, that, 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 the hope that we have in Christ. And last week, if you remember, we talked about the lie that says there is no absolute truth, there is no objective truth, and, and, and in fact, that, that claim is always funny to me because to make that statement is a claim to absolute truth. It's a claim to truth to say there is no absolute truth. So it's self-contradictory in the first place. And we learned last week that if, if truth is relative, if truth is relative and not absolute, then, uh, uh, then all spiritual truth is valid and anything goes. This is the world we live in, that you can believe anything you want to believe. And, uh, and it's all equal and it doesn't matter because your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. This is relativism. This is the world in which we live. And it, and it doesn't make sense. A world cannot function like that. Uh, the truth is that there is truth and there is your opinion. And that's, that's the reality of it. And, and, and uh, if all truth is relative, then, then anything anybody says is just as true as anybody else. And so it follows after that, then, that if truth is relative, then persuasion is not allowed and tolerance is king because I can't try to persuade you to my truth if you have a different truth and we have to be tolerant. Of course, they redefine the word tolerant uh, instead of being put, putting up with something not especially liked or wanted, uh, which is the dictionary definition of it. Tolerance now means that you have to say that all claims of truth, all lifestyles, everything is, is valid. Everything is equal. And that's just simply doesn't, doesn't work. And so, which by the way, it, 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 not only does anything go if truth is relative, but it's absolutely intolerable to question that. And absolutely no tolerance will be allowed for those who claim to know the truth, which is ironic. And then, and then the third thing was, if truth is relative, then that means there are no moral absolutes. Because a moral absolute must be based on an absolute truth. In other words, if we say that it's absolutely wrong to murder, period, then you are basing that on an absolute truth that murder is evil. And if you don't have an absolute truth, then you cannot say murder is evil because somebody else might have a different culture that says something different than that. And so you can't have a moral absolute. And, and if there are no moral absolutes, then it means you cannot condemn anyone else's actions as being wrong, no matter how egregious those actions may be, including those of Hitler, Stalin, uh, Charles Manson, and you name the worst person you can think of. And the truth is, the reality is, nobody really believes uh, in this whole idea that there are no moral absolutes when the immoral action is perpetrated on them, right? Somebody say, well, you know, you can't say it's wrong, but then you punch them in the nose. They're like, why'd you do that? Well, it's not wrong. <laughs> Suddenly it is wrong when it happens to them. Well, today we're going to move from absolute truth. And actually we're going to take two weeks on this. Today is going to be a little bit shorter because uh, we're fitting it in here. And then there's just too much to put it all in one message uh, but but we're going to address the common issue that bring up people bring up a lot of questions as you saw many of them on the screen during that video. Many people say that you can't trust the Bible, and so for the next two weeks, I want to show you 
why we can completely trust the accuracy of the Bible and we can be completely confident that it truly is the Word of God. So before we go any further, would you just bow your head with me and pray and ask for God's help today? Heavenly Father, would you just make your presence manifest in this place? You already have, Lord. Just We thank you for that. But come and give weight and power to these words. Help us to see how you have preserved your word throughout the ages, and, and now you have made it available to us. We know that there's power in your word, and I'm asking God for you to unleash that power in this place today. Have your way in us. Open minds and hearts in this place, on the live stream, wherever, anyone who watches this. And I ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Charles Templeton was a young journalist on the sports staff of the Toronto Globe when he came to a point in his life where he was tired of his lifestyle and that he was leading. And one night, after attending a strip club, he just felt the need for forgiveness. And kneeling by his bed, he prayed to God to cleanse his soul and he turned his life over to Jesus. Years later, he, he teamed up with a young Billy Graham to preach at Youth for Christ rallies around Europe. And he, after that, he later, after that, he founded a church that regularly saw over 1,200 people in attendance every week. And he was just cruising along in ministry until he started to consider some of the doubts he had, that had been gnawing at him on the inside for years. And one day on the cover of Life magazine, he saw an, an African mother holding her baby who was dead because of the famine that had devastated her, her country. And that did it. He left the ministry and became an agnostic. And if you don't know the difference between an atheist and an agnostic, an atheist is someone who says God does not exist. An agnostic is someone who doesn't necessarily deny that God exists, but just simply says, we can't possibly know if there is a God or not. He died in 2001 and actually wrote a couple of books about his agnosticism. So the question comes, how can we know if there's a God? And that's a really good question. There are many, many evidences of God, and, and we're not going to talk about all of those today. But one reason that we can know there is a God is because the Bible says so. And, and I know that immediately leads us to another question in many people's minds was, is that, well, but how can we know that the Bible is true? Just because the Bible says it says that there is a God doesn't mean it's true. We have to know why we can trust the Bible. And listen, this word is the foundation for our lives. Uh, we sing a song around here and it's a good song. I love the song, but there's one line that if we, if we ever change a word, I'd change one word. But there's a word in the line in the song that says, I will build my life upon your love. The Bible doesn't teach that, but it does say, I will build my, my life upon your word. This is our foundation. How do you know about his love? It's in here. And, and, and this is the foundation for our lives. And, and this is how we know who God is and what he's like. And, and, and so we we need to know why we can trust this. And many of us don't even know if, if a skeptic comes to you and they have uh, questions about the word of God. A lot of us don't know how we how we got this Bible, how it came to about, how God preserved it. And I'm going to help you with that. Can we really trust a book that's thousands of years old and has been translated thousands upon thousands of times? That's the question. And I hope to answer those questions and even uh, more questions uh, as well during the next couple of uh, messages in this series. And I'll tell you that right now, right up front, this is going to be a, 
really a different kind of message than what we normally have, but I think this is very important for us to have a foundation. My goal today is for those of you who believe in the Word of God, and there are other reasons we're going to talk about next week that many of us have experienced, is that you will, you will just, this will just deepen your faith to say, this Word is amazing. This is amazing what we have here. So we're going to be talking about, and, and there's no question that I believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that it can be trusted completely. I don't apologize for that view, and, and if, and, but you need to know my perspective as I discuss these things. And, and I just want to give a bit of a disclaimer here. I don't claim to have all the answers, and I don't promise that everybody will be satisfied with all the aspects of the questions I talk about today. Uh, after all, satisfaction is really in the eye of the beholder. But I do promise to do my best and to be available for any questions that you might have concerning this important topic. If you're watching the live stream and you can't uh, meet with me, I'd love to sit down with anybody at, uh, that has uh, questions. And, uh, and, and if you're on the live stream and, you, and you're watching it from another place, you can send me a, a, a message through Facebook or whatever. And I, I'd love to answer those questions more fully if I can. But I just ask that everybody, not just in this place, but on the live stream especially, that you'd be open-minded enough to honestly consider the validity of what I'm going to share today. Before we do anything else, I want to read two passages of Scripture that I want you to keep in mind during our time. The first is from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the Word of God stands forever. The next is from the New Testament where Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This morning, I want to deal with three questions regarding the Bible. The first question is really the root of our, our dis, the discussion around the trustworthiness of the Bible. And the first question is this, how do we know that the Bible we have today is accurate? How do we know that the Bible we, we have today is accurate? In order to answer that question, we have. Uh, we, we must know how the Bible we have came uh, today actually came to us. Uh, we, we believe that the scriptures were originally penned by all of these different people. There were uh, over forty different authors, uh, and, they, and, they, and they, the scriptures were totally without error. But the question we face today is that we're going to deal with right now is how were those original writings transferred to us today? How do we know that what we read here is what was written? by those men of old, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Can we trust the Bible as it is in print today? Well, to answer that question, we need, we need to understand how the Bible has been passed on from generation to generation over the centuries. Is the Bible his, uh, historically reliable? Can we trust the copying process? Well, the, I want to talk first about the Old Testament copying process. The process used by Jewish scribes is, is really fascinating. They were not just meticulous. They were downright fanatical about getting it just right. Jewish scribes used a highly specific system that assured that all copies were totally accurate. Let, let me just read to you a few of the rules that, that they had to observe. The scribes, when you read about scribes, these were people who were, who were copying the Word of God on this, from one scroll to another to preserve it over the centuries because, as you know, uh, especially back with the materials they used. They don't last forever. They would decay, they deteriorate, and so they wanted to make sure they preserve it. Let me read a few of the rules that they had to observe when copying the Old Testament 
all the way up through the time of Christ. Uh, and not all of these have, uh, you'll just see that they're very specific. A synagogue roll must be written on skins of clean animals. Every skin must contain a certain number of columns equal through the entire text. The length of each column must not extend over uh, less than 48 or more than 60 lines, and the width must consist of 30 letters. No word or letter, not even a yod, which is a very small little mark in the Hebrew alphabet, must be written from memory. The scribe must look at a, 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 the words that he's copying before he writes it down. He cannot trust on his, mem- his own memory. He had to look at the original before he wrote it down uh, on, the new, on the new scroll. And between every letter on, uh, uh, on the page, there was to be a space of a hair or a thread between them. The, the, the fifth book of Moses must terminate exactly with a line, but the rest need not do so. The, the scribe was not to begin to write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink. That's because a newly dipped pen or a quill might blot and they weren't, didn't want to mess up the name of God. And here's another one. If it should a king address him while writing the name of God, he must take no notice of him. He ignores the king till he's writing the name of God, till he's done writing that. And then after a copy was made, the copy was examined very closely. And if, if everything was in order, the copy was kept. If there was a single error, even as small as, as uh, the wrong number of, of, of letters on a column, the wrong number of columns, too many lines on a page, e- any error at all was found. They, weren't, they didn't just put it off to the side somewhere. They destroyed it immediately. Now, so we know the copying process for the Old Testament. But most people struggle more with the New Testament than the Old Testament. As for the New Testament, there's more evidence for the documentary reliability of the New Testament than for all other ancient documents. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Let's examine the historical reliability of other ancient texts, okay? So everybody here, has everybody here heard of Homer's Iliad? You know, the Iliad, the Odyssey? Who's Who's heard of the Iliad? All right. Well, most of us here, but it's if you're in high school, you probably have to read that at some point in time. Uh, but it's it's uh, Homer's Iliad has the greatest manuscript authority of any non-Christian ancient work. And what that means is there are 650 surviving ancient manuscripts of the of the Iliad. They have ancient copies of the Iliad written down. They have 650 of them. And they can compare all of those 650 copies, and they have determined that it's that uh, uh, for non-Christian ancient work that it's the most reliable uh, ancient uh, document that there is because they can compare them and they see that they're all the same. 650 of them. Now, the earliest copy dates back to the third century, but the Iliad was written in 650 BC. So that means there was about a thousand year span, but between the time it was written. And the earliest surviving manuscript, the earliest copy that we have. All right, keep that in mind. How many of you have heard of Aristotle? Kind of a famous philosopher. He wrote uh, something called Poetics, and it was written in 343 BC. And the earliest manuscript that, (coughs) excuse me, in existence is dated at 1100 AD. 
That's a span of 1,400 years. Then you have Caesar's uh, 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 work called History of the Gallic Wars. It was written around 50 B.C. There are less than a dozen existing manuscripts of this work. The oldest dates back to the 9th century B.C. That's a span of about 1,000 years. Now, in, liter- in the literary world, these works are considered to be authoritative. They're considered to be reliable. Uh, in spite of the fact that they are copies of copies of copies of copies that are hundreds of years older than the originals. Why is that? It's because scholars have learned that copies can be trusted because of the meticulous process of copying, and they can compare all of these different copies from different places around the world and see that those copies that they have are reliable. Uh, One proof of this is in the fact that the archaeologists have found copies of the Iliad in different parts of the world that are virtually identical to each other. And the more copies a piece of literature that exists, the better. Does that make sense? If you want to find out if something is reliable, the more copies you have that you can compare to each other, the better off you are. And this is where the New Testament is unique among all ancient texts. You ready for this? Listen, today there are more than 20,000 ancient New Testament manuscripts in different languages from different parts of the world. The Iliad is considered the most reliable. It has 650. The New Testament, there are 20,000. Do you hear that? 20,000 in different languages in different parts of the world. And the earliest fragments date back to the second century. So while the Iliad has a span of a millennium, a thousand years, with the New Testament, there's a span of a few decades. So based on the number of ancient manuscripts available, the New Testament is obviously a book that is to be taken seriously. Dr. Clark Pinnock, a theology professor from Regent College, wrote this. He said, there exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies on which an intelligent decision may be made. An honest person cannot dismiss a source of this kind. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based on an irrational basis. When you, when you honestly consider the facts, you cannot deny that from a historical standpoint, the reliability and the integrity of the New Testament is beyond question. You can be certain that the Bible we have today is an accurate reproduction of what was, what was received from the biblical authors. And I'll just throw this in here as well, just a little extra for those out there that try to tell you that, that, uh, that the only one you can trust is the King James Version, it's people that don't understand this whole process of copying because these, the modern versions we have, like the ESV or the NIV or the New Living Translation, uh, the, the King James was an excellent translation when it was translated in 1600s. But since that day, we have found more copies of manuscripts. And some of those are older than what they had when they translated the the King James. The modern translations, the newer ones, uh, rely more on the older translation because it's closer to the source. So and so, and any differences that you see are minor. They you know they get hung up on specific words, but there is nothing about salvation or theology that changes 
in the modern translations. I want you to be aware of that. If you like the King James, that's fine. That's wonderful. It's actually much easier to memorize for me because it's so different than the way we speak. Uh, but uh, but, but don't, don't get derailed by somebody that says you have to do King James only. That's just not true. They just don't understand the history of, of uh, manuscripts and, and copying and, and all of these things. All right, a- another thing that comes up when people are debating about the Bible, they say, well, they, they say, well, you know, it was just this group, and they'll say some council somewhere, and they say it was just a group of old men that got together, and they decided what the Bible was going to be, and they just picked and choose. Well, so the question, and the next question is, who decided which writings would be in the Bible? particularly the the New Testament. Uh, How did we get the Bible that we have today? One of the charges leveled against the Bible, and especially the New Testament, is that it was put together by a bunch of old, white-haired, oppressive Christians who decided what would be included so that they could control the Christian church. Well, first let me mention that the Old Testament of the Christian Bible is the same collection that that was and is recognized by Judaism today, Our Old Testament contains all of the books and all of the writings of the Hebrew Scriptures, but they're just put in a different order in the the Christian Bible. The the, the Old Testament books have been held as authoritative Scripture for centuries before the time of Christ. So that's not really the issue because nobody decided what would be in that. That was something that was decided long before. But what about the New Testament? There are 27 books in the New Testament. Do you know how we got them? There, there were dozens upon dozens of Christian writings from the early days of the church that were considered for inclusion in the New Testament, but they did not make the cut. For, for example, there was one called the Gospel According to Thomas. There's the Gospel According to Peter. There was the Acts of Paul. There was the Epistle of Barnabas. There was the Shepherd of Hermas, the, the, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Apocalypse of Stephen, the Acts of Andrew, the Gospel of Nicodemus, and on and on and on it goes. Why weren't these books, or you may have heard somebody mention another one, why were they not included in the, in the Bible? Why aren't they in the New Testament? And, and some people even said, hey, this book used to be in there, but it was taken out. No, that's not true. That's just not historically accurate. Why were these books included? Why were these other ones excluded? The, I mean, the Gospel of Peter, shouldn't that be in there? I mean, it's Peter. He's a, he's a big guy. He walked on water. His book ought to be in there. What, what about the Acts of Paul? Paul's the most significant outside of Jesus, the most significant person in church history. Shouldn't his book have been included? Whose job was it to decide which books would and would not be included in the New Testament? Well, in 397 AD, the Council of Carthage convened and they officially determined which books would be included in the New Testament. The council, which consisted of church leaders from all over the world, did not arbitrarily choose 27 books at random. I want you to understand this. The Council of Carthage chose the books based on three criteria. So they didn't say, hey, I like this one. Let's, let's keep it in and lobby to have it in there. No, they, they, before they ever considered any of them, they said, any book that's considered scripture must meet these three criteria. Here's what they are. Number one, the book must have apostolic authority. The book must have apostolic authority. In other words, they must have been written by apostles themselves who were eyewitnesses of what they wrote about, or they must have been written by a close associate of a known apostle. For example, like Mark was written by 
by a man named Mark who was a very close associate from uh, Peter. Peter is the one who dictated Mark to him. He just wrote it down. Or Luke, who traveled with the Apostle Paul. He was right there. He was an eyewitness, even though he himself is not an apostle, but he was with the apostle. And, and, if, and if it didn't fit this, this, uh, this uh, uh, criterion, it wasn't considered. Number two, the book must conform to what was called the rule of faith. All right. So the, the, the church at large had this, uh, this general rule of faith, uh, things that they recognized as being normative in the church, in their belief, in their faith, in their, in their theology. And so they asked the question, was the document congruent with a basic Christian tradition that the church recognizes normative? Or did it introduce new ideas and new theologies that are not repeated anywhere else in, in the New Testament? And if it didn't fit this criterion, it would be disqualified. The third thing was this. The books must have had continuous acceptance and usage by the church at large. In other words, the church had already decided these things are very valuable. These books are very helpful. These books help us grow. These books speak to us and, and make a difference in our lives. And if, and if it wasn't in use in churches at large, then it wasn't included. And all of the 27 books in the New Testament met these criteria. Those that did not meet these criteria were left out. So, for example, there was a book called The Gospel of Nicodemus. It was immediately doubted for a couple of reasons. Number one, there was no evidence that was actually written by Nicodemus. Number two, it contained stories and sayings about Jesus that were not part of the well-known oral tradition. Therefore, they recognized them as being fabrications. For example, there, there's one, I forget which one it is, one of these uh, uh, books uh, uh, that, that told a story about Jesus when he was a child that he, he saw a dead bird, he picked it up and brought it back to life and let it fly off. You, you see, uh, there, Jesus didn't do things on a whim. He had a purpose behind them. And that was clearly recognized as a story that was added in just to add to his aura. He, just didn't, he doesn't need anything added to it. And, and so if there, were, if there were things in there that were not included in, in what was already known about Jesus, that, that was, a, that was a, a red flag. Same could be said of the Gospel of Peter. There was no evidence that Peter had written it, and it contained sayings attributed to Jesus that were not consistent and sometimes even contradicted what was already known in the more authoritative books taught about what they taught about Jesus. In other words, it became obvious that these books and others like them were not authentic. The New Testament did not come together because someone decided one day that these books would be in the New Testament. It wasn't a, a handful of old men sitting together and say, well, this is what it is and because we say so. The development of the New Testament was a 300 plus year process during which hundreds of leaders of the early church recognized the values of the writings that we have in our New Testament. Through their wisdom and their scholarship, they were able to distinguish between what, that which was authentic and that which wasn't. And the books in the New Testament did not just accidentally fall into place. They weren't randomly chosen by a group of men. These books in the New Testament proved themselves to the early church leaders to be the word of God. William Barclay, a great commentator, he wrote this. He said, it is the simple truth to say that the New Testament books became canonical or became part of the, the, the scripture 
because no one could stop them from doing so. It's similar to when, a, 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 in other words, he said, nobody said these are in and let's eliminate them. They, they set the criteria and said, nobody gets in unless you meet the criteria. And there were 27 that did. It's really actually very similar. I want you to give an illustration to help you understand this. It's very similar when a player uh, gets voted into the Hall of Fame. For example, uh, go to the NFL. NFL has started. And most of us know the, 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 the name Joe Montana. Great, everybody but Marybeth uh, knows him, Joe Montana. Uh, he's great, you know, one of the all-time greats. He's in the argument over who, who the greatest quarterback ever was. And then uh, there was also a, a, a man that some of you will remember. He was selected very high in the draft. His name was Ryan Leaf. But he turned out to be a bust. He was terrible. He was a terrible quarterback. All right, here's the thing. Uh, technically, both Joe Montana and Ryan Leaf qualify for consideration in the Hall of Fame because they're both former NFL players. But Joe Montana was a shoe-in and he was when he was elected in the Hall of Fame in 2000. Ryan Leaf, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but he doesn't stand a chance. Why is that? It's because the purpose of the Hall of Fame is to recognize great players. They don't pick players at random and decide arbitrarily to call them great. They simply recognize who proved themselves to be great throughout the course of their career. And the men at the, at the Council of Carthage did not arbitrarily pick it. They just recognized which books proved themselves to be the Word of God. They, they actually did not decide what would be called the Word of God. They merely recognize what God was already using in his church. Let's move on to our next question because uh, we've got several. Uh, we're actually going to deal with more next week. But one of the objections that people have when they read the New Testament is, is they, they have this modern mindset and they say, oh, miracles, they can't be real. So aren't the stories of Jesus just legends? Aren't they just made up? All these stories that have, uh, first of all, I want to address this. Once in a while, you'll come across somebody and say, oh, Jesus never really existed. Well, they don't know anything. They don't know what they're talking about because there is no question that Jesus of Nazareth existed, that he lived during the time claimed in the New Testament. He's mentioned in other sources outside the Bible. For example, the Jewish historian Josephus who is not a believing Jew. He does, never became a Christian, but he mentions Jesus of Nazareth. The fact of a historical Jesus of Naz Nazareth has been well established. We know he really existed. So uh, anybody that says that, they either, they either don't know the truth or they just want an argument. Um, uh, most skeptics, however, they don't question whether Jesus existed, they, but they question the miracles of Jesus, especially his resurrection, his death and resurrection. And I'm going to deal with those in particular uh, in a later message, but let me just get to the bedrock issue of what we're going to be talking, how it ties into what we're talking about today. And that is, can we trust what the New Testament writers said about Jesus? It, that's the question that we're dealing with. And I want to give you reasons for believing what the Bible says about Jesus. First of all, they were generally eyewitness accounts. Matthew and John were, were written by the apostles of the same name. They walked with Jesus. They saw Jesus. You have the book of James, 
you know, but, but of course he doesn't, he, talk, he doesn't tell anything about the life of Jesus and its miracles, but he was there. You have Luke who was written by an associate of the Apostle Paul. And then the opening verses of Luke, he describes how he took great care to separate fact from fiction in writing the gospel. By the way, Luke wrote the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And, and historians will tell you that he was a tremendous historian. He did his research. Mark was written by an associate of the Apostle Peter. Uh, these Gospels came out during the lifetimes of the Apostles. That's significant. Um, but, but it was also, you need to understand, also came out during the lifetimes of those who, if they had information that discredited them, they could have brought it out. See, for example, if I'm in here and I, and I uh, start to tell a story about Lee Winters, which I'm sure there are plenty that can be told, uh, and, and most of those, the ones that sound the most unbelievable, probably the most true with Lee. Uh, that'd be my, my uh, observation. But, but I, I, could, I could tell you a story about Lee Winters, but the problem is if I tell you something that's not true, Wendy is here to tell me, no, that's not right. Because she was there and she saw it all, right? And she has seen everything, I'm sure, and then some. So, and and I I, I shouldn't pick on Lee; he's not even here today, but but uh, he he won't care. That's right. So, so this is what I'm saying: is that with these men, when they wrote these things down, it wasn't just during their lifetimes that they were written down that their testimony was being given, but people who hated. Christianity, people who hated the gospel, people who who hated Jesus and wanted to destroy this powerful movement that was sweeping the world, they also had the opportunity to refute what they were saying about Jesus, and they could not do it. In fact, I'm sure I'll bring this up in another week, but think about this with the resurrection of Jesus. When the disciples started proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, all the Pharisees had to do to put it all to an end was to produce a body. But they couldn't. And so the gospel kept moving forward. There are eyewitness accounts, uh, accounts of these things. So, And this is especially important when we look at the death and resurrection of Jesus. We'll come back to this another week. The, the second thing is that the writers of the gospels and, and the rest of the New Testament as well, were willing to die for what they wrote. This is so powerful when you think about this. Now, it does not prove that, that, that they were true, what, what they said was true, but I can tell you this. No one will willingly die for what they know is not true. See, here's the thing, is that if the disciples made up the, the story of the resurrection and they said, let's just make this up, First of all, they had no motive because they didn't get rich from it. In fact, they lost everything. But if they just made it up, not only could the Pharisees refute that by producing a body, but if they just made it up, when they're facing death, okay, it, someone will die for something that they think is true that is not true. That will happen. Somebody, people do that all the time. People, people that are, you know, there, there, there are Muslims that do that. They die for things that is, it is not true. We know people will die for something that is not true, but they believe it is true. However, I have never met anybody who will die for something that they know is not true. You see the difference? 
If I believe it's true, I'm willing to die for it. But when the de- when push comes to shove and they say, all right, if you don't renounce this, I'm going to kill you if I know it's not true. And I gain nothing else from it. I've already lost all everything, all my worldly goods. I'm, I'm on the run for my life, all these things. If I face that moment and I know it's not true, that's the moment when I say, all right, you know what? I'm going to renounce this, Jesus. This has gone far enough. It's I just made up the story. It's not true. But none of the disciples did that. They all faced death because they believed to the core of their being. Jesus rose from the dead. The apostles would not have gone to their deaths at the hands of hateful people if it had just been merely legend. We're going to deal more with that later. Number three, third reason for believing what the Bible says about Jesus. And this speaks to, and we're going to deal with this again later more, the the historical accuracy. Because here's the thing, uh, just because we know that the Bible was translated and copied correctly does not prove that it is historically accurate. It just means that it was copied properly. But this is the part that helps us understand that the Bible is accurate, that is historically accurate. Archaeological evidence shows that the New Testament is correct over and over again in describing geography and political leaders and events. There have been coins and papyri that have been discovered that support the New Testament recording of history. There have been many different times throughout history that historians accused the Bible of being inaccurate. They said, no, they got this wrong. There was no such person. Only to discover later through an archaeological dig that the Bible was exactly right. That person did exist. They existed where they said. They had the office that, he, that the Bible said. In fact, you may not know this, but the whole field of archaeology was actually invented because of the Bible. It was men and women who wanted to determine if the Bible was true, so they started archaeological digs to, to, in places that the Bible talked about, and they have, uh, and it gave birth to this whole field of study of archaeology. Uh, and over and over and over and over and over again, the archaeological finds have found physical proof that what the Bible said historically is accurate. So uh, we we know we can trust it because. It has proven itself. Not only is it an accurate reproduction, is it an accurate copy? Do we have, is it an accurate translation? Not only that, but we know that what it says has been proven to be historically accurate. So therefore, there's no reason to doubt that what it says about Jesus is inaccurate. A thinking person can can place their trust in the scriptures without having to throw away the reasoning skills. Christianity is a reasonable faith, not a blind faith. It is not a faith that says, hey, just check your brain at the door and believe blindly whatever we tell you to believe. In fact, what does Scripture say in one place? It says, come, let us reason together. What the the Bible teaches, the, the Christianity of the Bible, is a reasonable faith. It is not something that makes no sense at all. Now, it is a faith because it does not, uh, we believe in things that are, that don't normally happen in the realm of, of nature. 
that we believe in miracles. We believe that the resurrection really happened and that there are coming a resurrection for, for all mankind. We, we believe this. So there is a faith involved. However, there is a reason behind the faith. We don't blindly believe what the Bible says. We don't blindly believe in Jesus, but we look at the evidence and all of the evidence points to the reality that Jesus is who he said he was and that Jesus literally died on the cross and that he literally rose again on the third day that Jesus performed all of those miracles, we can trust what the Bible says and we can trust that it is accurate. And by placing your trust in the Bible, you're, what you're doing is you're, you're merely recognizing that the Word of God can stand up to the scrutiny of reasonable people, including yourself. And, and many people who will not accept the Word of God are people that have left reason behind and they're relying merely on their feelings. We talked about that last week. People choose truth based on how, how it makes them feel. The problem with the Bible for most people is that it confronts my sin. It makes me deal with what's wrong with my life. It makes me look at myself and realize I'm not a good person, I am a sinner. I am broken inside. And I need a healer. I need a, a savior to save me from my sin. It points to all of those things. And if it doesn't make me feel good, many people will say it can't be truth. Well, this message is, this can't help them, but something we're going to talk about next week will help them. But we know that it stands up to the scrutiny of, of people who look at it with an open, reasonable mind. And I challenge you to do that today. Read the Bible for yourself. Get into this word of God. You know, we, we talk about how valuable it is, how important it is, how precious it is. But let me ask you this. Does, does, how, does your, how does your Bible reading reflect the truth that you, when you say that it is valuable? Does your Bible reading, the way you treat the Word of God, show that it is valuable to you? Challenge you. Read it. Check out the evidence. And you'll see that you can trust the, the, the Bible. Go to the primary source. Go to the eyewitness accounts of those who lived with and loved Jesus so much that it cost them their very lives. And there may be some people, not, maybe not in this room, but maybe on the live stream, there may be some people that you've had time to process the claims of Christ. There have been seeds that have been planted in you years and years ago, and the Holy Spirit has been working on you, and, and now you're at a place where you may be ready to make a decision to follow Him and make Him Lord of your life. And if you'd like to do that, I would love nothing more than to pray with you. And so I, I, I just want everybody here just to bow your head and close your eyes. And I, I, just, want to, I just want to pray a simple prayer. And I'm looking around here. I think everybody here probably is in a good position with the Lord, but maybe this will help somebody that's on a live stream. So would you just pray this prayer out loud with me? I'm going to ask you just to repeat it. Would you do that? Just pray this. Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus is who he said he was. I believe he's the Savior of the world. I admit that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. So I confess my sin to you. I turn my back on all of it. And I give my life to you, Jesus. From now on, you call the shots. From now on, you're the boss. I declare this day that you are my Lord. Make me a new person. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And listen, if you're on the live stream or even in this room and you prayed that prayer and you meant it, if it's sincerity of your heart, it's not because of a certain words that we chose, but it's about the way you believe in your heart. If you prayed that and you believe in Jesus, the Bible says you're now a child of God. That's the good news of the gospel. You're not who you used to be. Now you're, you're a brand new person. That's good news. Listen, I just want to say again, if anybody has any questions or if, if somebody asked, has asked you a question that, or posed a, uh, some sort of objection that you're, you just don't know what to say, feel free to get in touch with me. Call me. I, I don't know that I'll have the answer, but I got a lot of resources that we can maybe dig through and help find an answer. But I want, you to, I want to help prepare you. That's the whole goal of this series. I know it's weird. It's different. You know, we usually, uh, you know, not talking about the Bible. We're looking at Scripture from the Bible. I know this is different, but, but this series, I just feel it's important because we live in a world where, where truth is being challenged and there are questions that are being asked. And I want you to at least be ready. I don't want you to be standing there shell-shocked I want you to be able to say, hey, you know what? Our pastor just talked about this and, and, and you can either help them watch it or you can go back and watch it yourself or refresh your memory or contact me, get more con- information. But I don't want you just standing there like a deer in the headlights, you know, or like a, like a calf looking at a new, new gate, you know, <laughs> just don't know what to do. Uh, and that's the whole point of this. So even though it's different, I just hope that you'll plan on being here every, every week that you'll walk through this so that you'll be prepared. You'll be able to give an answer because, because many times, you know, listen, there are times, there are many people who just want to argue their way out of it. They just, that, they don't want to deal with any real issues. They want to argue, but you'll be able to say, well, listen, here, let me answer that briefly. I'll say this, this, and this. Now let's get back to the real issue. But I want to help you. I want you to be able to talk with people and, and, and some people won't have these kind of objections. They're, but there are others that you're going to run into and probably already have that are true skeptics and just don't want to believe. I want to help you have answers to help them see that this is not a blind faith, that it's perfectly reasonable to believe in Jesus. Amen. I want to pray for you uh, before we leave this place. Would you stand together with me? Father, I thank you for each one of these people. I love them, Lord. And I know that the love you put into my heart for them is nothing compared to how much you love them. And God, I just pray that you help us to see the people that we run into all week long with those same lenses, Lord God, that we'll look at them and say, hey, you know what? God loves them just as much as he loves me. And that God will be ready to give an answer that we will be faithful witnesses to all that you've done in us, all that you're doing in our lives and what we have seen, that we'll be ready to tell people about the Jesus we love. And Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness and give us wisdom in those moments when there's people that have objections, they want to change the subject, and God, just help us to be ready to give an answer. And we give you praise for all of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.